Hello and welcome to Nightlight. When Nightlight was first founded nearly 30 years ago, we named it based on the scripture found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, which says we have a more sure word of prophecy, which you do well to take heed as to a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arises in your hearts. We felt as we entered the close of the 20th century and the dawn of the 21st century that our assignment was to offer the best we could a message of light and hope in the face of what seemed at that time like growing darkness and that for as long as God granted us the strength and the anointing, that's what we would do. Though I'm sure at times I failed to hit that mark, for the most part, I believe every message has been on on target to some degree. The struggle each time has been to discern when a message needed to be prophetic and when it needed to be more personal, more, more pastoral. When did it need to speak to the wider battlefield nationally and internationally? And when did it need to be directed at the individual's heart, our private personal struggles. Only speaking to you once a month was at times very frustrating because then as now, there were always so many things that needed to be addressed. But corporately and personally, uh, both of them needed more time, it seemed, than we were able to give. Now, that has vastly increased. I I used to feel like a message needed to go out at least once a week, then daily. Now it seems like every hour some aspect of our current warfare, both corporate and private, is calling for some kind of response. I've been tempted to offer a more regular means of communicating with you. Uh, and so we, we produced... Uh, a blog format on our website called Clay's Count Corner. Pretty catchy title, don't you think? But lately it has been very neglected due to many extra demands on us. So rather than being an additional platform that keeps up with the times, it has not been that at all. And beside that, Clay's Corner has not at all been a wide prophetic platform referring to current world or national events, but has been far more personal and aimed mainly to help us focus on the great need we all have, and that is to draw closer and closer to Jesus. In other words, it has been more pastoral than prophetic. Now, if you're like me, you are maybe overwhelmed with the great flow of information that not only is at your fingertips, but which friends and family may send you every day. I get far more in a single day than I can possibly digest. And I'm often reminded of the striking words of a national security agent that I heard being interviewed on C-SPAN back in 2005 right after several British terrorist bombing attacks. When he was asked by the interviewer what was the greatest challenge in national security, he quickly replied with no hesitation, that's an easy question. The greatest challenge is that we're getting too much information. My ears perked up at that. He went on to explain that a vast inflow of information, even if it is generally trustworthy, can be such a flood that it, its very largeness hinders a wise diagnosis and digestion of that information so that it can be brought to a helpful form. Well, now we have not only far more of that vast inflow but we have a grievous mixture. And added to that, the Marxist attempts to shut down all voices but their own. Then add to that the terrible lack of desire among so many to do their own research 
and exercise their own discernment and their willingness in many cases to just bow to whatever lying voices they hear and we all can see even more how vital it is to pursue and obey the truth. So then, based on all that, I have come to a conclusion that at least for now, my task is to do all I can, even if it's only month by month, with a few blogs now and then, to offer to you the best I can what I have learned in drawing close to Jesus. To encourage you as much as God allows with truths I have learned, often learned the hard way. But because they were hard learned, they've become hardwired. And I pray what Mary and I share with you will be truly helpful, Christ-honoring, and practical. For in the face of the current crisis, what is more important, to hear various levels of truth, important as they all may be, or to draw nearer to the one who is himself truth? So with that, let me try to unpack here some things I didn't have time to address in our previous message. If you listened to it, you remember that I attempted to ask some hard questions regarding the sad and very confusing news of Robbie Zacharias' secret sexual sinful practices. I hope I was able to make clear from my own story as well as my living through four decades of encountering many pastors and professors and educational leaders and theology students and youth pastors, etc. And finding so often that they were full of knowledge, even correct, accurate knowledge from Scripture, yet they were gripped by terrible habits and immoral bondages of all sorts, most often, not always, but most often sexual ones. I then began to try to point to the fact that Jesus addressed this very division between head and heart when he said to the Pharisees, who were the spiritual moral leaders of that era, you search the scriptures For in them you think you have life, but they point to me, and you will not come to me in order that you might have life. How many times have I encountered people of all ages from all sorts of religious backgrounds who have sunk themselves into a valid and even needed theological education, often with the aim of apologetics, aiming to address the hard questions of our Antichrist culture, but often seeking to settle their own inner battles at the same time. But by the time they reached me, they had thought and fought inside until they were burned out and angry. And in their frustration and exhaustion, they'd given themselves over to the most childish, carnal self-comforts, from pornography to actual immoral encounters. I understand I had done the same thing until my collapse brought me to the end of myself. And my childish carnality gave way to childlike cries for Jesus to help me. And then in that collapsed state, he could reach me. He could help me. See, the lost sheep could do nothing but lay there and allow the good shepherd to find him. That was me. So I want to begin here with the fact that we all need our own version of that collapse. Thankfully, not all of us have to go as far as I did, but some do, and maybe Maybe you've never, you've never come to a point of collapse so blatant and so brazen and so broken as I, as mine was, but to you it, it was terrible. And that's all that matters is it, it, it take, it takes you to a place of 
I know this because some of you, because I hear from you, you think you're at the end of yourself. But, but maybe you're not. You're not yet fully there because instead of childlike, you are angry. Instead of humble, you are face-saving. Instead of honest, you are excuse-making. I don't say any of this from any self-righteous ascended perch of judgment on you, but only from a memory of my own process. You're You're not at the bottom yet as long as you're trying to save face. For this kind of inner transformation that we all long for is a process. Now, let's stop here and take a breath and examine this statement I just made, that it is a process. I will remember a wise helper saying to me years ago, if you think in terms of being in process, you will live making excuses for your sin because you can rationalize that you are always just quote, in process. Now, there's some truth to that. But, on the other hand, if you think in terms of, I am not in process, I am a Christian, and Christians don't do X, Y, or Z, so either I am not a Christian, or I better just stop doing X, Y, and Z. This black and white thinking can lead to one of two ends. Either you give up being a Christian altogether, or you hide your ongoing struggles and become a hypocrite and a Pharisee. I'm sure you've noticed that there's people who uh, are doing a certain, uh, have a certain reaction to a certain sin uh, that is really angry and raging, quite often they are actually doing that very sin. Not always, but quite often. They're, they're doing the very sin they're so enraged at. Certain kinds of preaching would bring me under terrible shame. Not conviction, but shame. Conviction has in it the power to meet me with help, to help me change. I didn't come under conviction quite often. I just felt shamed. Shame just crushes you underfoot. The church system of my area in the late 60s and 70s had few answers for sexual struggles. And that became a production line for either backsliders on the one hand or Pharisees on the other. Few came through all that really transformed, including me. Many of us went on into ministry trying to manage our secret sins and preaching from a place of anger and shame and frustration that produced the bad fruit that I believe erupted into the culture wars of the 1980s and 90s and beyond. Back in those days, terms like inner healing or deliverance became a problem for many though it is not necessarily a false term. If one can be sick inwardly, it only stands to reason that one can receive healing inwardly. And if one can be in bondage, one can be instantly delivered. That's valid. But the term came to be equated with instant miracles or instant freedoms. And there were certainly some instant manifestations. Well, I had seen instant healings of people's bodies, so it was understandable that my young mind would make the natural assumption that if God were to heal me inwardly, that too would be instant. But I didn't find any instant healing. I begged God to fix me, change me, heal me, etc. Why, if he loved me, would he not hear my cry and do what I needed? I would take many years of struggling and agonizing and failing and shameful stumbling and broken relationships before I began to learn that God was hearing me, was answering me, but not with some instant miraculous fiat that made no demand on my choices or my will. Now, 
I thought I would hear about my will and making choices. Um, you know, whenever I, I would hear people make reference to the will or making choices, here, here's how I would hear that. I, if you will just change yourself, then God will change you. That's how I, that's how I heard it. And so I would become even more angry. And all that did, of course, was drive me into a frenzy of attempted self-improvement that always ended in a greater frenzy of raging self-pity, resulting in a period of sinful self-indulgence. Then the cycle would begin again. Sin a little, serve a little. Like Samson, I would rise up, flex my spiritual muscles, go out and attack the enemies, then lay my head in my Delilah's lap where I would eventually lose my strength, lose my sight, and end up going in circles of sinful drudgery round and round, exhausted, blind, and bound. I did get some help from the truths taught by schools of inner healing. We have hours of that kind of teaching available in our recorded messages. All truth is God's truth, so anytime I heard anything that was true and took it to heart, it did help. But I was still often just limping through life, only managing my sin. That was not transformative. It was not the level of living promised by Scripture. What was I not getting? It was not only that I was struggling with myself, but I was at the same time struggling with scores of other people who were coming to me for help. Can you imagine? I would seemingly help them, or often not help them, and go my way either feeling good that some folks were getting it, or most often feeling bad because many of us, me included, were not. Here's a letter I found stuck in my Bible after a conference one, one time many years ago. It said, Where was God when I was being so badly hurt as a child? Why didn't he protect me? Your answer is a true one, but even still it's not enough. I didn't answer or it didn't answer or appease the hurt of being abandoned by God the only one who could have protected me, and he didn't. Your answer, though true, feels like one of those superficial bandages. The phrase superficial bandages stuck in my mind. And though I was not able to speak to this person again, I couldn't help but feel deep empathy with what they have written. I went to my room at the conference center and found rage rising up in me, not at the honest, hurting person who wrote that note, but rage at God. I, I felt the same way. So what, what kind of help could I offer the other people? At, at risk of being heard by neighboring rooms, I cried out to God for better answers that I was either getting or giving. I began to reconsider the scriptures, especially regarding the cross. And the Holy Spirit began to teach me how very shallow my understanding of the gospel was, how very shallow my understanding of all of life was. And though I never had a chance to readdress the writer of that letter, I still felt the word superficial was an important word both for the writer of the letter and for myself. There was a superficial demand to be explained to and to be made satisfied on an intellectual level before there was any childlike humility of trusting the crucified Messiah and following him into the light out of our darkness. I began to see how very weak my relationship with Jesus really was. Now let's stop here again and be sure you're hearing me. For at this point, I would it would be really easy for you to assume that all I'm going to tell you at this point 
is that we needed a deeper rededication to Jesus, like so many Baptists have done over and over and over, rededicating, and I'm not saying that to be disrespectful, uh, but but so any pastor worth his salt knows these rededications don't produce a whole lot of fruit. Sometimes they do, but usually they don't. Uh, I am not speaking here of some kind of shallow, though emotionally moving at times, rededication. What I'm referring to is certainly not the same old religious try-harder stuff, but it was the only answer for the person who wrote me as well as for the answer I needed. It's the only answer for every person I've encountered since who was and is, after all, uh, going through all, all their struggles of going through inner healing work, valid and helpful as all that is, still feeling stuck in their old, broken, sinful patterns of thinking, feeling, and doing. And I will spend the rest of this time together now unpacking what I came to understand. Are you interested? It's not some huge mystery. Don't try to brace yourself for some earth-shaking new revelation. I'm not going to write a new book about it. For I came to understand that the person who wrote that letter and me had this in common. We were both Christians. We were both in great pain from early childhood wounds. We both prayed for help. We both got only a little help. So what's next? I came to see gradually, but somewhat faster than I'd ever seen before, that my block was this. I had read the gospel and heard the gospel and believed the gospel. I had heard all sorts of messages about dying to self, embracing the cross, renewing my mind, on and on. All good teaching. But I simply did not ever teach my body how to live those truths out. I was a product of our Western hyper-intellectualized Christian culture. I was trying to reason and think and sin manage. As I said in our time together last, last month, I believe this is what hurt Ravi. This is what brought Ravi to such a place of brokenness. And only Ravi's high-profile notoriety has made it such a tragedy. But there are millions of us in similar situations. We're just not so high-profile, so our failure and fall is not so injurious. But at the risk of being accused of... Uh, playing devil's advocate, I just know from experience, years of experience, how much secret sin is in the life of pastors and leaders and preachers and counselors and Christians in general. And, and it take a prophet to know that, for heaven's sakes. I mean, look around. We, we wag our finger at the Catholic Church only to find shortly after, uh, an equally horrendous level of abuse among fundamental Baptists. And when the uh, regular Baptists started uh, waggling their finger at the fundamental, fundamental Baptists, it began to come un unglued among Southern Baptists. And then, of course, the, then the charismatic churches began to have their uh, superstars collapsing right and left from sexual sins of all kinds, and it was just a, a horrendous mess. Big, uh, big time, well-known, respected writers uh, began to come out, Christian writers, and say they weren't Christians anymore uh, because they'd been hiding their sexual struggles and they couldn't hide them anymore, and on and on and on. While I was trying to reason and think and sin manage, it was killing me. So many had said to me, do you have another book or another tape? 
And I understand that. I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle anybody. And, I, and we're grateful for the effectiveness of books and tapes for heaven's sakes. That's what we've been communicating through for four decades and more. But, but the point is, whatever this happens to be, do you have one more book on this, one more tape on this, whatever struggle they're in? Whatever this happened to be, more information about whatever that struggle was, was not going to transform their feelings, behavior, and lifestyle. Uh, as I described in our last hour together, I, I felt the pain when Ravi describes himself in his book on Oscar Wilde as saying that uh, he had read and reread the biographies of Oscar Wilde. And I saw myself wading through the hundreds of books over the years, always looking for just one more book that might be the key to unlock my prison. I heard the Lord in my heart say to me, Son, your search, and you search in books, in them you think you have life. But you will not come to me that you might have life. I began to realize, little by little, it dawned on me that the truth I was longing for was hidden from the wise and prudent, as it says in Matthew 11, and was only revealed to little babies. I didn't want to be a little baby. I didn't want to be a son. I wanted to be a wise and prudent grown-up with answers. The Lord wanted me to be his child and to live like it. He wanted me to present my body to him as a living sacrifice. I'd never done that. I had only heard that scripture quoted until I could quote it myself. Then I had quoted it. So I had heard it quoted and I had quoted it. I had never, ever, ever done it. I had never presented my body to God as a living sacrifice. I began to realize there were vast amounts of truth I had only mentally affirmed. I had never done any of them, only talked about them. It was a dramatic yet simple truth to discover that I was only walking in a tiny part of the truth I claimed to believe. And so I was only free to the degree I was walking in that truth I claimed to believe. Where I was still in bondage, I was not walking in that part of the truth. So if I wanted to become free, I would have to take Jesus seriously when he said, if you, Clay, continue in my word, then you are really my disciple. And if you will know that, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That, but by the way, that's just another way of saying what he says again in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of and from me. In both these verses, John eight thirty two and Matthew eleven twenty seven is it twenty eight? In both of those verses, he's, Jesus is saying the same thing. In both of those verses, Jesus is speaking to practicing Jews who believe in G in Jesus, but were still under the burden of religious sin management. And he was saying to them what he was saying to me. What was he saying to me, Clay? If you put yourself under my yoke. That is, walk with me, obey me, let me teach you how to actually live life. You will become, step by step, fully and completely free. But I need you to commit to living with and walking with me every day as my son, doing what I show you step by step. You will not get it right all the time, but eventually you will and eventually you will be fully free. See, this is not earth-shaking new revelation. 
never seen or heard before. But it is earth-shaking and new if you have never taken it seriously enough to do it before. Okay, again, let's stop and take a breather and examine what we're hearing so far. Let me go back and uh, re-examine a statement that was made in the letter that I found stuck in my Bible. Let Let me refer back to the last line in that letter. It said that my answer to the question of suffering that I had given from the platform was true as far as it goes, but it wasn't enough. The person who wrote the note said, uh, yes, it's true, but, quote, it feels like one of those superficial bandages and doesn't get to the root of the pain. Well, let's examine that statement. Was my answer a superficial bandage? Yet it was true. Can something be both true and merely superficial? Well, first, as I mentioned, I was in deep empathy with the person who wrote that note. I had felt the same frustration they were expressing. I'd felt it often. And as I already stated, uh, but I want to drive it home clearly, I was not angry or defensive when I read that note. I'm not now. I understand that complaint. But we have become so shallow in our thinking and so unable to think deeply and scripturally about the big questions of life that we are unwilling to take the time and make the effort to press into the truth. And we are unbelieving when it comes to the Holy Spirit that he will help us embrace the truth So we ask shallow questions, expecting fast, easy, shallow answers, even answers to our painful struggles, which we know are not shallow and not easily unpacked. The writer of this note was truly hurting, had battled a long time with hard questions, just like I had. But still, because of the easy answer Christian culture we've all floated around in, this person wanted a fast, easy, shallow response, but one that would still meet the need. The writer was right to say that any answer I might give from the speaker's platform felt like one of those superficial bandages. For such a quick, easy, spoken answer from a platform is by its very nature superficial. The word superficial means only on the surface, only what is apparent, not going deep. So the writer was asking for a superficial answer that would satisfy his or her deep question and frustrated that the answer given felt merely superficial. Now, I wasn't prepared, obviously, to help the writer of that note, For I had not faced my own superficiality yet. Their letter drove me to God where I had to face myself before him. I I knew my anger at God for not helping me was misplaced. I had been able to help a number of questioners who were ready to give up on seeking God by helping them face some harder, deeper level questions. But when it came to my own ongoing inner struggles with sin, I had given up. I was opting for the superficial, easy, non-answers. So my shallow answer to questions of suffering and spiritual warfare that had become only helpful to some people was beginning to be shown up for being superficial, only superficially helped. It got us through the moment of interaction about the mystery of life, but it did not really meet the person at the deep core level of pain they were asking about. And I've learned if there's one person who is hurting enough to write a question down and give it to me, 
she represents or he represents many, many more people who are not secure enough to pointedly ask the question. Reminded me of Jeremiah chapter 8, where Jeremiah says, or God says through Jeremiah, the wise are ashamed, they are dismayed and taken, for they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people only superficially, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no healer there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? See, the wise are ashamed. Why? Because God has hidden the truth that heals from the wise and the prudent and revealed them only to babies, Matthew chapter 11 says. The wise in this story have only become wise in their own eyes. They have rejected the word of the Lord while they are standing up teaching from it. That was what I was doing that day in that conference when that note was sent to me. Superficial words were not reaching the core trouble of the heart of my audience. I had to get alone and face myself in the parts of me where I had become self-deceived. See, I had become angry at my ongoing, my ongoing failures and beginning to blame God for what he was not doing for me. But I had learned how to present myself publicly with superficial responses but was not going deep with God to get at the core struggles in my own life. So was unable to speak truth that would bring healing, only superficial band-aids. So what was I going to have to do? Well, I was going to have to face every area of my life where I had become frustrated with lack of change then I was going to have to repent for unconsciously and at times even consciously blaming God. And then I was going to have to embrace the parts of Scripture I had ignored. Oh, I re- I'd read Jeremiah 8 many times and w- thought about those stupid priests and prophets who had rejected the word of the Lord. How could they be such fools? But here I was having to face the fact that I was, I was just like them. I was rejecting the word of the Lord, the parts I didn't want, or the parts I didn't have faith for, or the parts I didn't understand. It's one thing to not understand something and lay it aside, trusting the Holy Spirit to eventually bring you to the truth. It's another thing to not understand and just decide that that part's not either either not for you or uh, maybe it's not even valid. Just lay it aside. Just uh, maybe that just that won't happen for me till heaven. So I began to uh, have to go through a time of real repentance. Now again, y'all remember, the word repentance doesn't mean wallowing on the floor in tears and feeling like a, a sorry dog, although there's sometimes place for that. But real repentance means change your thinking so that you can change your direction. Uh, and Sometimes it's changing your direction so it will help you change your thinking. But I won't get into that right now. But because it was longer and harder, um, it was a longer, harder way to embrace what the Holy Spirit was showing me. See, I I was like the rest of my culture, Christian culture. I, I demanded results without necessary effort. Did you hear what I just said? I demanded results in me without necessary obedient effort. Why we even have made effort something we call works salvation. Why he believes in works, not grace. The Bible has no concept of grace apart from corresponding obedience or works. The Bible knows nothing about that. It's only an evangelicalism that we have turned grace into some kind of magic band-aid 
that covers our sinful behavior until heaven. And we just limp along, doing our best, not really doing our best, but thinking we're doing our best, singing, saying that grace will cover it, God understands, God is patient, yada, yada, yada. I'd learned to do that from my Christian culture and even from some of the textbooks I'd studied, which had all taught the same thing. Because, see, they rejected the power of the Spirit. They rejected the work of the Spirit. They rejected the supernatural except for the new birth itself. But everything after the new birth is just left to your own intellect, your own effort, your own struggle. So we end up either being total backsliders who don't have any reality of God in our lives. And we don't want to be hypocrites, so we give up and say, forget it all, I'm going to go back to the world. Or worse, yes worse, we become pharisaical hypocrites who cover up our sin secretly uh, while learning to say all the right things publicly. So I had to reject the status quo message of grace as it has been most superficially communicated in most churches. And I had to embrace real grace instead. So what is real grace? I've dealt with this in some detail before, but here now let me just say that false grace is the idea propagated by many churches that when you, quote, get saved, you are covered over by the robe of righteousness and made legally just. And yes, we know there are scriptures that to some degree support that idea. But when left only to that imagery alone, we end up with a false message and it produces bad fruit. Yes, most definitely we are saved by grace and grace alone. That's just obvious. I don't think we need to dwell on that obvious truth. If God is not acting on your behalf, you're lost and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing we can do ever to even improve ourselves. But then, based on that truth, we get mere men's commentary and it's false. So we end up being taught that the definition of grace is some weak, flaccid idea of, quote, grace is unmerited favor. That is not what grace is. But it sounds good if we're drowning in the false idea that Jesus came to save us in our sin instead of from our sin. And many people, myself included, suffered from a false view of salvation that allowed for ongoing, continuous, regular, habitual, sinful behaviors. But that was all okay because we're covered over by this weak, merely legal idea of positional grace. That's something I always pictured as being just a I'm, I'm filthy, but I had this white robe over me covering my filth. So for years, when I would continue to engage in sin of various kinds, or after I stopped even engaging in secret sin, I continually mentally uh, saw myself engaged in the same sin in my imagination, but only in the imagination. And so somehow I thought, well, that's okay, because it's only in the imagination. When Jesus clearly said, if you look at someone to lust after them in your heart, you're committing adultery in your imagination. And it's just the same as if you're doing it, except thankfully when you're doing it, you're hurting, you know, when you're not doing it, you're not hurting the, the person as much, but you're still in the sin. I would find false refuge in the false idea of being covered over with grace. But it wasn't grace. It was false grace. For real grace is not and never has been merely unmerited favor. I hate to even repeat it. It's so, it's so vapid. Grace is the power of God set in motion on my behalf for my ultimate good. That's what grace is. And grace will not only save me when I cannot save myself, but grace will transform me into a different person from what I was into someone I have never been but was destined to become. 
The years and years of suffering I went through due to my ongoing sin was grace. The scenarios of conflict and broken relationships that left me brokenhearted was grace. The collapse into mental agony that caused me to finally cry out to God for his will and purpose to be worked in my life no matter what it took was also grace. It was all grace. For we have referred to it many times. Paul tells us that this grace, this real grace, has appeared to all humans. And what does this real grace do? Titus chapter 2 tells us that this grace teaches us. See, grace doesn't just cover. Grace instructs, teaches, corrects, protects, directs, watches over, parents, guides. Grace teaches. What does it teach? It teaches us to deny ungodliness. By the way, you see, that's something you do. Grace teaches you to do it, but grace doesn't do it for you. Somebody says, well, that's just work salvation. That's stupid. How can that be works salvation? No, that's salvation that's work, that works. We're so afraid of works salvation, we have a salvation that doesn't even work. I mean, look at the mess of the church and tell me that this message is working. Bad teaching produces bad fruit. Anyway, good teaching produces good fruit. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts so that we may live soberly, righteously, and godly where? In this present world. While we're looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us in order that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself his own special people who are strongly desiring to do what is good. Good. It's not just a matter of gritting your teeth and trying not to sin. He didn't save us just from sin, but for righteousness. Anyway, so false grace just covers. Real grace teaches. False grace looks for heaven in an unhealthy way. Real grace transforms us for this present world. False grace forgives, yes. Maybe I shouldn't say false grace forgives, but false grace focuses on mere forgiveness, grateful as we are for forgiveness. But it, it, it focuses on it over and over and over and over with no real transformation. Real grace changes us from one level of glory to another level of glory. You have that to look forward to every day of your life. You're changing. You're changing from one glory to another glory. Finally, one day you will change to the point that you will be like him, for you will see him as he is. That's your destiny. Have you thought about that? When you, If you got really filled with that reality, do you realize how you would no longer look back at your past with shame or look at your present temptations with desire, but you would forget both that the past and the present because you're so envisioned with what you're going to become that you will be actually begin to become more like what you're going to become because you're so focused on it. You will become that that you're focused on. I've said it many times. Jesus did not come to save us in our sin, but from our sin. And really, I want to tell you, I've never said it quite this strongly before because I don't want to hurt anybody. But if you're teaching that you're just saved by grace and that you'll never change, you'll always be a sinner, just saved by grace, you're actually speaking uh, the word of the devil, the gospel of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, not to ensure those devilish works go on unhindered while we just cover them up with a band-aid called grace. 
So how do we learn to enter into the real grace? Well, we do not frustrate the grace of God. I love that term, we do not frustrate the grace of God. You frustrate some something that's already trying to do what it wants to do. Grace is always working for you. Always, always, The power of God is always released on your behalf in every situation you face. I just listed some of those terrible circumstances I came through. I look back on them now. They were all grace. They were all grace. He who has begun a good work in us will finish it. So we do not frustrate the grace of God that is already working on your behalf. So it's not a matter of you trying to get God to do it. We don't. We, so we just refuse to frustrate the grace of God. How do we frustrate the grace of God? Well, when we try to be good on our own, in our own religious self-righteous efforts, that's legalism. But we also do not frustrate, frustrate the grace of God by just living like we want to and claiming that grace will cover it because God understands and he knows we're weak. That's licentious, foolish arrogance. So we don't, we don't frustrate the grace of God either direction. We embrace grace and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us step by step how to live out in real time and space the life of Jesus in us, in our daily life. What are you dealing with right now? What are you going through right now? Do you have a situation that you're battling that's causing you grief or sorrow or frustration or anger or are you tempted with some besetting sin? Stop wrestling with it in your own strength and stop just giving into it and say, hoping God will understand and appropriate the power of God which is moving on your behalf in this right now. Father, help me now face this wrestling match I'm in with grace. We learn from him how to retrain our mind how to retrain our body, how to retrain our emotions. Yes, you can learn to retrain your feelings instead of being dominated by them. You can learn if you want to, or you can sit there with all the old questions that frustrate you and make you accuse God, like the dear person who wrote me that note. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic with the pain they're in. I'm empathetic with the questions they have. But I would say to them now, if I could have access to them, and maybe I do, maybe they're hearing this, but I could say to them exactly what I'm saying now. You can begin to say, I don't need all the answers. I need you. I need you. Search the scriptures. In them you think you have life, but they point to me. And you will not come to me. Come to me. Come to me. We will do anything but come to Jesus. You know why? If you hear me teaching right now, you can, you can turn me off. Or you can actually say, you know, Clay, I, I, I think that's a pretty good idea. But it, it's just your idea. It may be true, but... It's just your idea. And by, by keeping me relegated to it just being my idea, you can then turn me off and uh, dismiss me. But when you come to Jesus in honesty, in naked, hopeless honesty, and say to him, I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what it takes. It's costing me too much anyway. I don't care anymore what it costs. Please, Lord Jesus, take me with you. I want to take my yoke upon my, your yoke upon me. I want, I want to take your yoke upon me and learn from and of you because I am, I am so tired. I need rest. If, when you do that, then when you hear from him, you can't dismiss him. You can't say, well, that's just your opinion. And when I came to him on that level, and I quit with all due respect to the many teachers I loved and had learned some things from, and I came to the place where it didn't matter to me anymore what they said. It didn't matter to me anymore what anybody said. 
I just wanted Jesus to be Lord over my life and to take me where he wanted me to go. Then we make the word of God our guide and the spirit of God our power. So we begin to live out our daily earthly lives in the classroom of Jesus. We become his disciple. So what does that look like? Well, for each of us, it will be as different as we are different as individuals. For, for some, it will have certain emphases that are not for others. For the person like me who was early on wounded by impurity and lust, I will have to learn from him how to stop looking at people as objects for my own self-pleasure and to love and serve him and, and serve them which is serving him. For others who may have never had that problem, but have maybe been very self-righteous and churchy and goody-two-shoes, they may have to learn to humble themselves and wash the feet of people they once thought were beneath them. Well, I could go on and on with examples and not address all the the issues and needs because human fallen nature has developed millions of wrong ways to live. But that's the point is, if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to have to be a disciple of Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm going to have moments when I realize I'm not obeying him or listening for him. And instead of beating myself up for failing as if you were trying to win brownie points by obedience, I'm just going to rejoice that I just remembered I've been neglecting the voice of the Lord. I've been neglecting the presence of the Lord. And I've been um, producing some bad fruit because of it. And so in rejoicing, I come back to his side and ask him to help me clean up and change and transform. And then he picks up right where we left off because he never rejects you. He never throws you away. He's never angry at you. He's never disappointed in you because he's never had any false ideas about you. He knows what a mess you are. Whether it's a messy mess or a religious goody-two-shoes mess, it's still a stinking mess. And he knows what you need to bring you out of that mess. And so he sets in motion circumstances for you to wrestle with And that's by grace. Grace then helps you learn to wrestle with the problems until you learn to change the way you react and respond. We learn to stop behaving from the old patterns that we habitually have reinforced over the years and we start behaving differently, which will then help us start thinking differently which will then help us begin to start feeling differently. But we we don't want to do it that way. We We want to do it the other way. We want to start with the changing of our feelings, and then maybe it might affect our thinking, and maybe, but probably not, it will affect our behavior, but not really because, after all, we're all just sinners saved by grace. That's another false idea, see. The Bible never says you're sinners saved by grace. Never. That's a religious phrase. We were sinners and we got saved by grace. The Bible never refers to, I don't quote Paul to me about he was the chiefest of sinners. I know all that, but Paul understood this. So Paul can get away with saying he was the chiefest of sinners because Paul understood what I'm saying right here. You don't have the power to... uh, uh, appropriate Paul's statement as your own on that level. You, you wallow and hide behind being a sinner saved by grace. You'll just go on, keep sinning, keep producing bad fruit, and keep blaming God for it. I don't want to live that way, and I know you don't want to live that way. I know you, I know you don't want to live that way. Forgive me for talking to you like you do want to live that way, because that's not who you are. Because why? You are saints set apart for God. We are growing every day by grace and in grace. We now understand grace is not mere favor covering a hopelessly fallen, wretched sinfulness. Grace is God's power extended on our behalf for our ultimate good. It is our destiny to not only be forgiven, we already are forgiven. It is our destiny to be not only forgiven, 
but transformed into eventually the very image and likeness of Jesus and to be filled with all the fullness of God. That's your destiny. That's your destiny. Father, I pray for every man and woman listening to my voice now. I pray, Father, that your grace will be so upon them that they will get the revelation of grace like they've never had it before and they will re- they'll start getting up in the morning meeting every day in the joy of the Lord for the joy that is set before them. They will endure whatever they have to endure because they trust your grace in them. In Jesus' name.